When we think about even like the tragedy of a life cut short, how do we know that someone in their 20s hasn't lived a full life? How do we know that someone in their 70s has? I mean, I think there's a lot of these interesting kind of sentimental narratives and stories and assumptions about a life well-lived, a life cut short, what it means to be ready to die. All of that stuff filters into how we see where our patients are at. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest, Dr. Sunita Puri, some business items. I have quite a few, but I will try to go through them as quickly as possible. The first is that I am thrilled to announce that our guest speaker for the Unspeak Easy three-night retreat in the Poconos this coming October is none other than Kat Rosenfield. You've probably read Kat's brilliant cultural criticism in places like the New York Times and Unheard, Tablet, and Reason. She's also the author of five books, including No One Will Miss Her, which was nominated for an Edgar Prize. She's the co-host with Phoebe Maltzbovey of the Feminine Chaos podcast. The two have been guests on this podcast, and she will be joining us. We are doing this at a really posh resort in the Poconos, not the heart-shaped bed kind of resort, although maybe you can request one. And Kat will be joining us for a little speaking event, and then staying overnight with us. So if this intrigues you, please go to theunspeakeasy.com right now and request information. This is October 23rd through 26th. Space for these things is very limited. That's what makes them so special. And we do have a number of signups, but it's not too late. And uh, by the way, you don't have to be in the online Unspeakeasy community to attend these things. Sometimes there's a little bit of confusion. They're not the same thing. It's great if you are, but it's not required. You also don't have to be some kind of like fancy girl boss type. We have an enormous range of women in this community and at the events, and that is by design, and that is what makes it so amazing. Women of all ages, age zero, literally, <laughs> to 80, to age 80 plus. Uh, we've had babies attend. Babies uh, can make some incredible intellectual contributions. So babies, if you're hearing this, theunspeakeasy.com. Also, there's a one-day retreat in Denver on Saturday, September 30th. That is going to include an evening event for everybody. So the women's retreat portion will be during the day. Then there will be an unspeakeasy for all uh, party uh, comedy event, it's looking like. So again, go to theunspeakeasy.com, check that out. As for that online community, if you're on the fence, it's just getting better and better. We'll be starting a Zoom speakers series within the community, featuring private, off-the-record interviews with amazing thought leaders. I'm working on the programming for that right now, but I can tell you that Kathleen Stock, the feminist, former academic philosopher, writer, former guest on this podcast, will be a speaker in September. This is only for people in the community and it is not recorded. So you're going to want to be part of that. So it's a great time to join the online community. Also, <laughs> I'm going to be teaching a personal essay and memoir class on Zoom for six weeks. 
six consecutive Wednesdays starting September 6th from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. This has nothing to do with the unspeakeasy. This is not just for women. This is for everyone. So you can go to my substack, megandom.substack.com, and learn about that. This is for, I'd say, intermediate to advanced writers. And the application deadline is August 21st. Finally, this podcast now has a YouTube channel. It was uh, it was conveyed to me that nobody under the age of 30 consumes any content that's not on YouTube or TikTok. TikTok was a bridge too far. So now the Unspeakable Podcast is a YouTube channel. That just means that I'm uploading the audio episodes onto that channel. Um, all the episodes going forward are going to be on there. And there's also select back catalog episodes. So if you want to go there, please like and subscribe to the channel leave an intelligent comment, that would be much appreciated. Okay, if you're still listening, my guest is Sunita Puri. Sunita is a physician and also an accomplished writer. Specifically, she is a palliative care physician who has written extensively about end-of-life medicine. Her book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, came out in 2019. And since then, and even before then, she's published numerous articles in the New York Times, the Atlantic, places like that, about her work in end-of-life medicine. Now, as you know, I have been making an effort to have more conversations here about death and dying, especially as they pertain to you know, the ways that medical advancements often cloud the vision of doctors and patients. When it comes to being realistic and even humane about how we die, uh, so Sunita talks a lot about that, and she talks about things like why terminally ill patients often get treated differently and even often receive different information depending on a variety of factors, including their age. So that is like really interesting. So as you'll hear, Sunita is a personal friend, and uh, we've talked about a lot of these things before, especially in relation to the death of my own parents, which we cover a little here. Part of the occasion for her visit this week is an article she has coming out in The New Yorker about CPR, which actually is an incredibly complex topic that speaks directly to our misconceptions about what is and is not possible at the end of life. You'll hear me refer to that as a recent article. Since our recording, the piece got held for a week or so, as is apt to happen, and as of now, is scheduled to come out on July 29th. So if you go looking for it and it's not there yet, it will be soon. Sunita stays overtime for our paying subscribers to share some more personal thoughts. And we talk about, among other things, our critical inner voice. For instance, how many stars we'd give in Yelp reviews of ourselves, whether doctors are more likely to have a critical internal voice, why it's so hard to get into medical school even though there seems to be such a shortage of doctors and much more. So to hear that part, go to megandown.substack.com, become a paying subscriber. And in the meantime, here is my conversation with Sunita Puri. Sunita Puri, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. It's a real honor to be here with you. You are a palliative care physician, I think you've been practicing for almost a decade now. 
You are also an author. Your book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, came out in 2019. You write a lot about end-of-life care, the state of hospice, the state of palliative care. My listeners know that this is a subject that I'm interested in. And we have a lot to talk about in this conversation, but I thought I would just start off by asking you a very general question about the state of palliative care, how it has or hasn't changed over the last several decades, and, and what you think maybe people's biggest misconceptions are. That's a great question. And I think, you know, for, I'm sure your listeners in particular have a good understanding of this, but just in case, I wanted to kind of define what palliative care is. And it's a newer subspecialty in medicine that really focuses on addressing the different types of suffering that people and their families experience when they're very sick. So we do things like treat physical pain, like cancer pain. We treat emotional and spiritual suffering. And we do that in two big ways. One is by treating symptoms, things that are uncomfortable that people are experiencing. And that goes all the way from cancer pain to anxiety and depression to constipation. And we also talk with people and their families about what they know of their illness, what matters most to them in their life, what they're hoping for from their medical treatment, and what they would and wouldn't want for themselves as their disease grows worse. And this field really came about, it grew out of the hospice movement in the 1970s. And when people started to see that if we just pay attention to suffering and help people feel the best they can and have the best quality of life they can as they're dying, then people often did quite well, sometimes even defying their physician's expectations about life expectancy. And so in the 80s and 90s, there was a movement to try to get all of the benefits of hospice to people who weren't yet in the last six months of life. And that is really where hospice steps in, that, you know, it's a type of palliative care focusing on suffering, but you have to be in the last six months of life by your physician's best estimation. And so in the 80s and 90s, a lot of palliative care was really set in hospitals. And much of it was offered to people who were not yet at hospice, but very, very close to being at the stage of hospice. And since then, palliative care has kind of branched out into community settings. So we can see people after they leave the hospital in a clinic, for example. So when they see their oncologist, they can come see us so that we can ensure that their symptoms are well treated and that we're staying in conversation with them about really what's most important to them in their lives. And that's a conversation that has to be ongoing because people's goals and priorities shift as they get sicker. And so that's one big change in palliative care. And I think, of course, there's been a whole lot more of training programs that have kind of exploded, especially over the last 10 years. And there's more attention being paid in medical schools and residency programs to teaching people, how do you take care of somebody for, to whom, like, for whom cure is not possible? And that's a huge question in medicine. And it 
people understand it differently. They metabolize that differently and they bring their own biases to that question, especially when it comes to their self-identity as a physician, as someone who's supposed to fix, supposed to cure. The last thing I will say is that COVID, I think, really put palliative care more into the spotlight because people were very, very sick dying at unprecedented rates in overwhelmed hospital systems. And so I think the value of what we do became more visible during the pandemic. One of the misconceptions that I had for a long time, and I think probably this is common, is that I didn't realize there was a difference between palliative care and hospice. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, so my understanding is that, and I think you basically just articulated this, is that you can get, be assigned a palliative care team, even if you're not terminally ill. Is that technically correct? Yes. So, you know, people who, for example, have leukemia and might be getting a bone marrow transplant, they are getting curative therapy, or at least that's the hope. And yet palliative care can be really important for them because many of them have mouth sores or other really painful complications of being immunocompromised and getting going through a transplant. They may have psychological issues that are really related to dealing with their cancer and its treatment. That's another space that we can occupy with them, and they may be completely cured. And then you have people who, for example, have a condition that can't be cured, like metastatic or stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, but along their journey, when they're getting treatment, number one, treatment can cause terrible complications like neuropathy or you know, complete loss of appetite. Giving people pain meds is not something that all oncologists are expert in. So we kind of help in that space as well. And when they are ready to transition to hospice, we can facilitate that. And hospice, you know, is not what many people think of as a, as a death sentence or, you know, something that people should only get in the last few days of life. Because hospice really for us to do our best work the earlier people come on to hospice, the more we can do for them. But hospice, sorry to interrupt you, but hospice, just to be clear, like hospice, you do have to have a terminal diagnosis. Like you can be, yes. be you can have a palliative care treatment plan and not be necessarily terminally ill, but hospice specifically is for people with a terminal diagnosis? Yes. They have to have a prognosis or life expectancy of less than six months if the disease takes its natural course, which means on hospice, we're not doing things like chemotherapy or dialysis or advanced treatments for heart failure. So it really is kind of us stepping out of the way and allowing a natural death to happen with all of the intensive focus on keeping people as comfortable as possible with the best quality of life we can give them. Okay. So I know you and I have talked about this a little bit before, and I've certainly witnessed this firsthand. Is there sometimes tension or perhaps even, you know, a sense of working at cross purposes between oncologists, for instance, and palliative care doctors? Yes. So, you know, a lot, I think you and I have talked about this too, where, you know, it's a lot of people think that 
the greatest hardship in practicing palliative care is seeing patients and families suffer. And I've actually always found that the patient, working with the patients and families, sometimes is very, very stressful, but always rich and meaningful. And I think the hardest part of practicing is actually dealing with other physicians and other healthcare workers discomfort with the fact that their patients are going to die and they are going to suffer. And it's, I I would say there's definitely tension between palliative care physicians and other physicians who might see us as, you know, to be crude, the cleanup crew, where where they're quote unquote done with treating a patient, or they say, you know, there's quote unquote nothing more to do, which is a phrase that really pisses me off, um, especially when they say it to the patient and the family. That's when sometimes they think we're going to be useful. And in fact, you know, we, as we've been talking about, can be useful, not only to the patient and family, but to the team if we're called earlier. Because some of what I think other providers struggle with is the sense that you have to offer every possible treatment to a patient and let them choose. Let the patient choose. Yes. And we're not really doing our job as physicians if we present a buffet to people with no guidance. And so the earlier that we can get involved, the more we can actually guide the teams as well and support them. And so I think that's another misconception is that we're only there for the patient and the family when in fact, the best palliative care I think practiced well is a collaboration with the team as early as possible. Because when you sit down and talk to some of them, especially residents and fellows who are still in training and trying to navigate this morass of, do we give people full freedom to choose? What's our responsibility to guide them? We sit, I often will sit down with the team and ask them to help me understand their plan and ask questions to help them think through what they're really doing and offering. And that to me is something that I think hugely benefits patients and families, but it also helps all of us who are practicing to grow in the ways we're thinking about serious illness, what we offer, how we talk to people about this, how we both allow for autonomy in in choice, but also really weigh benefit and harm before just offering a buffet of options. Yeah, I was really surprised. I went through cancer diagnoses and deaths with both of my parents. And certainly the first time, I was surprised at how the oncology team really didn't have those sorts of services or like those sorts of conversations. I had just assumed that like if you were being treated for cancer, there was somebody in the mix, even if it was just like a nurse that you saw regularly that would say, okay, well, these are the symptoms that you're probably going to have. This is, These are the options for dealing with them. Like it was just really like chemotherapy, like over and over again. That's that's what they wanted. They were all about treatment and it was very they were just very focused on a on a particular thing. And then it, I didn't realize that it would be like a separate palliative care team mm-hmm. that that would be brought in and you know in the in the one of the cases with my father and this was my second time around so it was a little you know, wiser to what was going on. It was almost like they didn't want to bring in the palliative care person yep. like, asking. Mm-hmm. And they were just kind of like, Ugh, why are you being such a pain? Like, you know, <laughs> as if I was asking to have like, you know, special help after school or something. Like that. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, I, and first of all, I'm so sorry that you went through both of those experiences and that it didn't seem from our conversations about it, like the person was in focus as much as the cancer was exactly. in focus. And that to me, like when, when we talk about what treatment is, it's very alarming that we see treatment as focused just on disease when treatment actually means many different things. It's not just giving chemo. It's actually having a conversation with someone about, as you're alluding to, what do what does it mean to have this diagnosis? What are the symptoms going to be like, both from the disease but also from the treatment? How do we think about treatment as inclusive of symptom management, as inclusive of having even 10 minutes where we're not talking about chemo or surgery and just talking about how someone and their caregiver are doing? Because we can't really think about treatment in the holistic sense unless we do that. And it's safer and easier and less psychologically taxing just to say, here are your scans here's what we're going to do next. And I think that I will say, I think a lot of my colleagues feel like that's what patients and families want is just to talk about those things. And sometimes that's, I think, an excuse for not going into the more challenging but crucial territory. And sometimes I think they make their attempts and get shut down. And so they don't always make those efforts consistently. And I think part of what it means to kind of do this job well in oncology and in other specialties is to be brave enough to go into some of these places that are absolutely important for patients and families. Because if you tell somebody you have stage four lung cancer, here are the things that I'd like to do for you, but I want to talk about what your life is going to look like on these treatments. That's really the only way, in my opinion, for people to truly exercise informed consent. And then this comes down to an issue of ethics, right? So I cannot have you exercise your autonomy, which is important and very much enshrined in Western biomedical ethics. You can't exercise that unless I give you the information that you need to make informed decisions. And that's where I think things can get into tricky ethical territory if we're not having those discussions. And I do want to say I know my colleagues' jobs are extremely taxing and there's a lot on everyone's plate, but that's only a greater reason to involve palliative care because we can be the ally in those conversations. Is it that sometimes maybe they think that if they bring palliative care in, it's some sort of sign that they're failing or that the prognosis is looking grim? I mean, are they, it's almost like they're afraid of the optics of it sometimes I feel like. I think that's very true. And I think the pro the problem there is that people don't always know how to explain what palliative care is. And so like in the past, I've literally given people a script and I'm like, this is what you need to practice in your own words. And some of that script includes things like in order for me to take the best care of every aspect of your life and your suffering... I involve other members of our team called the palliative care specialists. Here is what they do. And 
if we're framed as being a standard part of the team, that's one way that I think people hear what we can offer a little bit differently rather than cordoning us off in this other universe and say, now these people are going to come in and help and not really provide the context for that. And so I think some of this comes down to education. Like how are we teaching doctors and doctors in training and other healthcare providers to think about palliative care? How are they explaining palliative care? Because when I'm teaching the trainees or even when I'm giving feedback to other attending colleagues, I tell them it's important to know how to have these conversations, but you'll never get to the conversation if you don't know how to frame what we do or frame the conversation that you're going to have as being an extremely important part of someone's care. What made you want to get into this specialty? <laughs> That's a question I get all the time, even from my own parents who <laughs> like keep asking, do you really want to keep doing this? So I wrote about this a lot in the book because I feel like it is a question of why would you go into medicine only to help care for people, many of whom will not survive for very long? And traditionally, people have kind of gone into medicine to be a quote-unquote hero and quote-unquote save lives and be George Clooney. And I, when I was Wait, going George to, Clooney? Oh, you mean like, like that ER. from ER? Wow, that is, a, <laughs> yeah. that is a blast from the past. Okay, yes. I will say I've been watching ER, which I never really watched before. And I just have to say, it is like the best medical drama I've ever seen. It's really it's, have you oh, seen yeah. Sane Elsewhere? So you never saw Sane Elsewhere. That's, I did not see that. Uh, no. That was really good. Okay. That makes ER look like list. friends. <laughs> just saying just saying. Well then I okay. have to check out this other show. Okay. But, but needless to say, George Clooney was not a palliative care doctor on that. George show. Clooney was not a palliative care doctor he, at all. He needed some palliative care for his soul. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, him aside, I so I when I went into medicine, I wanted to work in the ICU because my mom is an anesthesiologist, and I kind of saw her practice ICU medicine, take people to the OR have them come out doing well. And when I was a kid, when we didn't have anybody to babysit us, my brother and I went to the hospital with her. So I would round with her in the post-anesthesia care unit when people came out of surgery and she was monitoring them. Wow. And I remember... Wait, you know, how just, is that allowed? Sorry, hold on a second. <laughs> is that allowed? Like, are you going to be waking up from surgery and realize people's kids are like standing around? <laughs> I think that was back in like... The 80s, I feel like it was a very different scene. Yeah. <laughs> like, they let kids do anything back then. They really the did. Range. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what was going on most of the time because I think I was like five or six. Oh my gosh. So I was really young, but I could take in what was happening around me. And my mom would explain things later when she would drive us home. And I just, I was so impressed that she, her patients loved her, even though she, as an anesthesiologist, you really don't have a whole lot of time with them. And so that always struck me as like how you can form a bond very quickly with people in need, take care of them and see them through to the other side. 
And she didn't have continuity with her patients, but it was deeply rich and meaningful work. And I could see it on her patient's face. And so I wanted to do that. I wanted to be just like her. And I went into training and I was really pretty demoralized by the end of med school because all the reasons you go into it are not the things that are really emphasized in your training. And so it was a lot about memorizing things regurgitating things on rounds, being very afraid to get the answers wrong because A, you could hurt somebody, but B, you could get bad evaluations. And I remember distinctly a lot of the times when we would admit people in med school, my senior resident would almost immediately start asking, so what's the discharge plan going to be? And it was a lot about efficiency and getting people out of the hospital, which is important, but it was not what I, it was just very jarring to me. And I remember having this realization that I spent more time documenting on the computer and ordering tests than I did with my patients. And so at the end of med school, I did a rotation in palliative care and elective, which thank God I did that because it really changed the course of my life and my career. And I saw how, you know, this was not the intensive care unit where we put lines and tubes in people, often for very good reason, but sometimes not. It was really about understanding the bigger picture first, meaning what is the landscape of this person's disease? Where does this person occupy this landscape? Where do they see themselves going? And starting there as we figured out a treatment plan. So there's this saying, like, as we all know, don't just stand there, do something. And in palliative care, it's flipped. Don't just do something, stand there. And I like that because it really is a reversal of every impulse we're taught in medicine. And so when I went through residency, I really tried to convince myself, no, I can do ICU differently. But it was really always palliative care that called to me. It's really extraordinary, actually, to be able to sit with someone and their family who you do not know and to go to the most intimate places of discussion. And you have to build trust immediately. You have to read the room. You have to deal with the other doctors. It's a very delicate dance. And then helping someone feel better my God, it's it's like the best feeling in the world for someone to come in and tell you, I cannot walk to the bathroom on my own because of my pain. And you set that goal of, I want to help you with the right pain meds, meds to walk to the bathroom. And you see it happen. And it's amazing. And so it's just, it really <clears throat> is extraordinarily fulfilling, even though it's extremely challenging for a lot of cultural reasons within medicine and society. I want to shift a little bit and talk about an article you recently published in The New Yorker. And this has to do with something that is very much a part of kind of the the cultural scene, but that we don't really understand any of the subtleties of or the ramifications of, and that is CPR. Yes. So CPR, (laughs) uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, Mm -hmm. like it's just part, it's like, it's like the air we breathe. It's in every television show. It's in every, (laughs) it's like just kind of, um, ever since 
you know, you're a, a young child. You just know that this is like something that happens if there's an emergency. And um, I think like many people, I always associated it with just like, you know, a quick fix and everybody should know how to do this. <laughs> and it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt or something. But in fact, it is. it has been applied uh, over the last several decades in ways that it was never designed to be applied. So why don't you kind of walk us through this a, a little bit? Yes. So CPR, I think in the public's eyes you're alluding to, is seen as something that saves lives. And sometimes it does. But CPR, to kind of walk people through what exactly it is. So when we do CPR, I'm going to talk about the hospital setting first. Somebody loses a heartbeat and that means they have died. The way I explain it to my patients is that your heart stops and you die. And I'm very clear about that because I think people don't know that, that when I go in and start CPR, I'm not necessarily there to save your life. I'm there to reverse your death. And that's an important distinction that I think it sounds not so big of a difference, but it really is. Um, and when we do CPR, we do a hundred chest compressions a minute right above your breastbone, two inches deep into your chest. Sometimes depending on why your heart has stopped, we can use a defibrillator to try to reverse only two specific electrical patterns. And we put you on a ventilator as well, because when you have died, you can't breathe. And the whole point of CPR is to really keep blood flowing to the brain to minimize neurologic damage from your heart stopping. And so that's the other piece of it that I think people don't necessarily know. And so when we see CPR on television, what we see on shows like, you know, basically any of them, there's a study that I alluded to that looked at outcomes of CPR on three medical dramas. And I believe that the success rate was somewhere near 80%. And by success rate, I mean, it, they show not only somebody getting a heartbeat back, but usually surviving till hospital discharge. In real life, if someone's heart stops in the hospital, we are really looking at around 15% of people surviving to hospital discharge, but that statistic does not include how they do neurologically. So we can get a heartbeat back sometimes. That doesn't mean you're going to leave as the person you were. You could be leaving in a persistent vegetative state. You could be leaving with significant functional damage so that you can't inhabit your life and walk around or think or, you know, remember things the way you used to. And if somebody has a loss of heartbeat outside the hospital, we're looking at about 10% of people surviving till hospital discharge. So even though if someone, let's say, drops dead in a grocery store, it is appropriate to start CPR because that's kind of what we're all trained to do. But that should not be equated with saving a life because what you're trying to do is just get them the heartbeat back to go to the hospital 
And in any situation with CPR, what we're looking at is can we reverse the underlying cause of the cardiac arrest? I'm going to stop there because I just said a lot. Okay. Well, I have many, many thoughts, but, uh, and many <laughs> questions, but let's, um, okay. Well, one of the things you talk about this fascinating is that CPR actually originated as a way to treat people who have been electrocuted. Yes. So even going back further, like decades or centuries, really before then, CPR or resuscitation was really kind of invented or attempted by human beings because they wanted to really replicate what only God could do. That's where uh, that's where doctors get their attitude. Yeah. So it's all right there. Exactly. So one thing I wrote about in this piece was that the first kind of known revival of a dead person took place in Scotland in December of 1732. There was this coal miner who kind of went deep into a mine to address some sort of problem that had happened there. And he stopped breathing when he was down there because of the fumes, was brought up and a local surgeon just happened to be around and basically delivered rescue breaths to him. And, and eventually the guy woke up and walked home like four hours later. And so there was this whole, like, there were these series of societies, one of which was the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, which was based in Amsterdam and Amsterdam and London. And they started looking into a variety of ways to bring people back from the dead. And people who had drowned or people who had otherwise stopped breathing, but they were otherwise okay. And people thought, if we just fix what immediately happened to them, we can bring them back to life. They came up with a variety of techniques to try to do that. Um, I mean, some of these are pretty (laughs) ridiculous, like bloodletting or just pushing on someone's abdomen. And my favorite was using bellows to kind of force tobacco smoke either into the person's mouth to stimulate them to come back to life or into their anus. To try to stimulate. What? Yes. That. Wait. I think that's okay. And that's actually the the origin of the saying "blowing smoke up your ass." Really? Yeah. Wow. All right, (laughs) folks. If you learn nothing from this podcast in three years, (laughs) you're welcome. And the key here, Megan, was that there was a distinction between what's reversible and not reversible. And so, you know, when William Cohenhaven, who is the person who wrote or led that first paper in 1960 on CPR, he had observed on the job that electricians could get electrocuted and die. And so he started to wonder, is there a way to administer a countercurrent through the use of a defibrillator Um, which was what was invented, to try to undo what had been done to the heart. And so the original people intended to get CPR were people who, like Damar Hamlin, for example, were young, otherwise healthy, and had something sudden happen to them. And the reason for that is because 
they, they all knew that if somebody is dying from a chronic condition, the underlying cause of the cardiac arrest or the heart stopping would be related to the chronic condition, which can't be fixed. Whereas in this population, someone who had been electrocuted or someone who had been drowned or someone who, you know, had a bad reaction to surgery or anesthesia, these were people who could be easily intervened on. And even back in the olden days, the Society for, you know, the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, they even distinguished between people who still had some semblance of vitality and people who had no semblance of vitality. And that latter group was not included in any sort of techniques for resuscitation because even back then they knew if you're dying of tuberculosis, me trying to bring you back to life when you're, di- when you're dead from tuberculosis is futile. So when did things start to change? So things started to change in the 60s and 70s when there was this whole, there's tons of inventions in medicine, dialysis, pacemakers, ventilators. And we were in this kind of golden age of seeing that things we previously thought were unfixable and would lead to death weren't necessarily anymore unfixable. And so the invention of CPR was part of that. And early on in the early 60s, the only people really trained in CPR were cardiologists, anesthesiologists, and surgeons, because that was the group that was dealing with people who had an acute, sudden, potentially reversible problem. And then you had the development of what we call code teams. So in the hospital, a code blue is is the designation for somebody who has had a cardiac arrest and who's died. And so people started to kind of hospitals develop these code teams for anybody with a cardiac arrest to be attended to immediately. And so you started to see the blurring of what was reversible and what was not happen as a result of these code teams forming. And People nowadays, for example, we show up, I've been on these code teams, and it's just recalled if someone has any sort of cardiac arrest. It doesn't matter if they have been electrocuted versus dying of end-stage cancer. We show up and we do CPR, and we put them on ventilators, knowing most of the time, as the statistics show, that the vast majority of these people are going to die or be severely neurologically impaired no matter what we do. And is this because they don't have an advanced directive? Like, is this, is it pretty much if you don't specify that you do not wish for this to happen, it's going to happen? A lot of times, yes. So people either don't have these conversations or they don't document these conversations or nobody asks them about these preferences. And in the absence of a DNR, we're going to show up and do everything that constitutes CPR and intubation. Wow. And also like emergency, you know, EM, EMTs do this too, right? So like, oh, yes. if you yep. call 911, they're going to come and do this. Exactly. Exactly. That's what they're trained to do. And the only time they won't do it is if you have 
what's called a physician order for life-sustaining treatment, or in some states, it's called a medical order for life-sustaining treatment. And it's a bright pink form that you fill out and your doctor or your nurse practitioner signs. And it's on that form that you can say, if you do not want to be resuscitated or put on a ventilator, that's the way to protect yourself at home. If someone calls 911 and you have that pink form, the paramedics have to honor it. Whereas in the hospital, if you tell us you don't want to go through that, we put an electronic order in the chart and everyone can see that. But outside the hospital is where a lot of problems arise. So really to be protected, if you don't want to go through this, then you have to fill out a post form or a MOLST. Okay. So this actually encompasses sort of like everything that we're talking about. So I'll tell a story here. And I think you're, you, you know this story because you were, you and I were talking a lot when my father was sick. So my father was being treated for pancreatic cancer, but he also had a whole bunch of other things going on. And he had been in the hospital for a long time he was on dialysis for a while. They were hoping to get him off of that. He was actually starting to come off of that. He had been readmitted into the hospital after an AFib incident in the dialysis place, even though it was undetectable to him. He was fine, but because they picked up on this, they threw him back in the hospital for another two weeks. That was a big setback. He came home. He was... uh pretty weak, but they were all excited to resume his chemotherapy (laughs) and maybe even give him surgery for this pancreatic cancer because I guess it was in a place where they could, you know, theoretically do the Whipple surgery. Anyway, uh, he ended up going into cardiac arrest one night and dying technically. And by the time I got a call uh, from the paramedics who were in his apartment you know, I got a call saying he has died, et cetera, et cetera. I heard people working in the background. And then suddenly one of them comes on. I hear somebody in the background say, okay, we got a heartbeat. And this had been going on for like easily 20 minutes. Yep. And and they said, we got a heartbeat. And I said, stop. I was like, and it went into a complete panic. I said, I don't know if I was who I was talking to at that time, either like a fireman or like one of the EMTs. And I was like, no, 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 no. Stop right there. Stop, 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 stop. And he told him to stop. And he said, okay, I heard it in your voice that, um, you know, you wanted us to stop. And I am assuming there was no pink form. I can tell you there was no pink form because Mm -hmm. even though I had been asking for a palliative care team on this case, which they had been reluctant to give me because as far as they were concerned, he was not dying. Like he was being treated and it was all oncologists all the way. You know, he managed to get uh, discharged from the hospital in pretty weak condition without this form. And if I had not been on the phone and I was the closest relative, closest blood relative at that time, if I had not been on the phone, having a freak out, telling them to stop, he would have gone into the hospital and been in a vegetative state. And then we would have had to pull the plug, frankly, not to put in such crude terms, but that's what would have happened. And I remember when we talked about that, and I'm, again, so sorry that that was his experience at the end and that that was your experience at the end. And it's so many people's experiences. And it's just... I remember being very upset after our phone call because it was just like, 
what is it going to take for people to not have to die this way when they don't want to die that way? And he was in the hospital for a while. There were many opportunities to fill out that form or have a conversation with him. And I think I want to build on something you said, which is that they didn't think he was dying. And I think we have completely lost sight of what it means to be dying in modern medicine and modern society. And I think a lot of doctors think that someone who is dying is someone who has exhausted all treatment options. Okay, so now they're dying. Whereas from the beginning, when you have pancreatic cancer, you are by definition dying of your cancer. And the big open question is, can we stall that? Because even if it's technically, if you're in remission, for many of these cancers, they often come back. And so it's just like if you have heart failure and we can't transplant you, then you are dying of your heart failure. And I think we've forgotten that in medicine, there's a lot we cannot cure. There's a lot we can, but if we cannot clear our own lenses and understand what dying is and what it looks like, then we're going this is going to keep happening. And, you know, I'll often have patients or families, you know, resist having these discussions or filling out these forms because people will say, well, I feel fine now. I feel better. My pain is better. And you know, I will have to say that that is something that is a huge victory for right now, but we know things are going to change. And I would be lying to you or giving you false hope or quite frankly, not doing my job if I didn't help you understand that at some point, all of this is going to change and it's going to change for every single one of us. So do you want to have a plan in place or do you want to have your family in the situation of guessing and worse? Like you're saying, would you want to be, quote unquote, saved, but on a ventilator and never coming off of one? Because then we will turn to your family and say, okay, we need to stop. And I think people don't really understand how incredibly painful that is for families to have to make that call or for us to say, this is going to be as far as it goes because now we're only extending death. We're not bridging somebody back to life. So on all sides, it's just this morass that doesn't need to be quite so horrible. I mean, it will always be emotional. Planning doesn't take away the, the sorrow, but it can make certain types of sorrow less intense. Yeah, it's funny. So if maybe a few days before my father died, I had been with him while he was getting chemotherapy. I was sitting with him in the treatment room while he was getting the infusion and the oncologist kind of, you know, like doctor head in and we had a quick conversation and I had been requesting palliative care for weeks. Um, and they, you know, it was always like, oh, well, the person's not here right now. Like the shift is not her, something like this. And finally, you know, we were getting ready to leave. He was done. And somebody came in and said, oh, okay, well, the, actually the, the palliative care doctor is here now, if you would like to see her. And I remember it was between, and my father was like getting better enough. He was stronger enough. He could kind of like 
go home by himself. This was in New York City. So he could like jump in a taxi or something like that. And I thought, okay, well, I can meet with the doctor now and let him go home by himself. Or I can walk him out of the hospital and put him in a cab and not see the doctor. And I really sat there for a second. And I think for a minute, I was like, okay, well, God, I keep missing the doctor. So I guess I should do that. And then something in me said, no, you know what? Walk him out. Walk him out. Never mind with the doctor right now. I did. I walked him uh, down onto the street. I put him in a cab. And that was the last time I saw him. And that's just such a huge failure of our system. It's just, it's so, it's almost like in some ways I started to feel like it's just deeply unethical to take care of people who are as sick as your dad was and not be honest with them about what this, all of this means. Like we are so good at medicine, in medicine at reciting facts here, you have this, this is what we're going to do, but we do not tell people the significance of those facts. So if, for example, someone who's young and mostly healthy gets into a car accident and needs to be on a ventilator in the ICU for some time, that's a very different significance of being on a ventilator than someone who has end-stage cancer. And all we do is we say, now we're going to put you on a ventilator. And with, when we don't tell people what that means, it's a lost opportunity to help them contend with what they want their life to look like. And I just feel like we do have power in medicine, a significant amount of power. And we have used that obviously in good and bad ways. But if we use our power to perpetuate silence I think that's something that's becoming increasingly intolerable for me, to be honest, to watch this happen. And I wish things were changing in our culture faster than they are. And I mean culture, both, you know, medical practice and society. But I think that until that, until we see more change from within medicine, I really do think that it's patients and families that are going to need to demand the change by saying, no, I know that a palliative care doctor or palliative team can help people with cancer or heart failure tremendously. Like I want a referral and here's why. And if your physician refuses, I think it's an opportunity to really kind of explain why you think this is important and hear why they think it isn't. And most of the time, you know, we're in a society now where if someone walks into a primary care office with a headache and demands a CT scan, there's a lot of folks who will go ahead and order the scan. So if you go in and say, no, I want a palliative care doctor. I've read the literature. This is standard of care. For example, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, one of their recommendations is that from the time of a serious diagnosis of cancer, um, usually meaning incurable, palliative care should be seeing that patient from day one. This is a society recommendation. And so it's not coming just from palliative care, but knowing that having that information is a way to go into an appointment or a meeting in the hospital and say, hey, you know, I'm aware that there are actually studies that show palliative care from the time of a serious diagnosis alongside standard oncologic treatment can actually lengthen life. And I'm going to tell you more about that study in a second. But 
going in and saying that presents a very rational set of reasons to your physician who can say, yeah, okay, I hear your point. And if they won't do it, then I think sometimes contacting the palliative team directly, which is sometimes possible in institutions that list their contact number on websites, I suggest that too. No, I think they wouldn't like that. (laughs) I feel like if I did that, you know, one of the um, feelings I was getting, and this was true with both of my parents, was that when I started to ask questions like, well, what is the prognosis? What is the long game? Like, what's the end game? They kind of were like, I I got the feeling that they were sort of like, what is she, does she want her her mom to die or something? Like, will you, do you want that? Like, maybe this, I was projecting this, but it was, I got the feeling that they were like annoyed, like, oh, you're not being a team player here. Like, why are you asking these questions? You've given up on her already or something? Oh, yes. So that whole, that also, I've definitely heard of that happening quite frequently because I think sometimes what oncologists and other doctors are expecting is that families and patients want to fight. They want everything done and that their job as doctors is to give, is to do everything. And so when someone starts asking early on about the outlook, I think it can be interpreted in a way it's not intended because we're so used to people not wanting to necessarily know that, or we feel that we're going to quote unquote upset them if we have a frank conversation about it. And that's something else that I have written about is that our projections and our fears as physicians distort what our patients and families are actually asking for and what they can actually handle. And I think this whole language of, I'm a fighter, you're either a fighter or you're a quitter in this horrible binary that serves nobody. And I think we don't have good language to really talk about these things in medicine. Saying you're a fighter is a great kind of, you know, phrase that really means nothing. And we all say it. And the challenge is to ask people, well, tell me what that means to you. Tell me what you're fighting for. When you say you want everything done, tell me what everything looks like to you. Tell me what the miracle is that you're waiting for. Tell me what you mean when you say, if you don't do this, you're going to be seen as a quitter. Because we're all reading from some terrible script. That's where all these phrases come from. We're not actually having a conversation that's real and meaningful with people if we just use those words. Just like if we act shocked that someone wants to know a prognosis or outlook, we're kind of perpetuating that. That why would anyone want to know that, especially early on, when our first obligation is to just start treating? This dovetails into something that I know you've been thinking about as well, and that has to do with the way that physicians treat younger people who may have a terminal illness versus older people. You say that there is a form of ageism in play that we often do not think about. Yes. So, you know, at my prior job... I saw a very large number of young people, meaning people younger than 50, but also a lot of people in their 20s and 30s 
with devastating cancers. And in general, the average age of the people I saw at my last job was, you know, in the 50s. And so that was, to me, a huge shift from where I had trained in the past. And some of this was because some of the cancers that tend to happen to people who are younger, there was kind of a center of excellence at our institution for people with those illnesses. So I just happened to see a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. But we're also seeing that cancers like colorectal cancer, for example, is far more common, shockingly more common in people younger than 65 than has been the case in the past. And so, and it's not totally clear why this is, but this is why colon cancer screening the recommendation went from starting at 50 to starting at 45. Oh, really? mm -hmm. Even apart from people who have things like sarcomas, which are a specific type of cancer that tends to show up in younger people, these other cancers that were traditionally considered cancers of later age are now showing up as well in younger people. So I've seen a lot of young people with cancer and something that struck me or strikes me generally is that in medicine, we are so careful not to appear ageist against older patients, which obviously I'm a hundred percent in favor of. And I think during COVID that concern became heightened because when we started talking about things like potential rationing of supplies like ventilators or other things, the immediate concern was that older people would be discriminated against. And so for very real important reasons, ageism against older patients has been a huge focus. The thing that I started to see though, was that we would talk to older people more easily about the fact that they were very sick and that they were dying And it wouldn't be the same sort of kind of amount of distress as when someone maybe had the same cancer, but was decades younger. And I would take care of these patients, treat their pain. Um, I was often told not to talk to them about their outlook, even if they asked, or if I thought it was appropriate to start having the conversations because it's what I would literally do for someone decades older. You were told, sorry, by the oncologist not to talk to them about the outcome? Yes. And and this is actually not, you know, it, it happens in palliative care where we're told only talk about one set of things. Don't talk about hospice. Don't talk about goals of care. And it, it's, it's sad and unfortunate. It doesn't happen everywhere, but it does happen in some places. And it's a kind of an ongoing cultural battle of Do you tell the palliative care doctor how to do their job where you wouldn't tell the cardiologist how to do their job? And the subject matter is obviously very different and can be very challenging and emotional. So there are times, unfortunately, that we're told just talk about their pain and symptoms. Don't talk about anything else. And so I had been in those situations in the past and What was so difficult was that, A, I felt like it was kind of reverse ageism because we were not doing for them what we were doing for somebody 
decades older than them simply because the other person was decades older than them. And so we might treat the pain the same, but if someone asked me, why is my pain getting worse? It would be more challenging to explain it to a younger patient than an older patient, mainly because I was told not to get into certain things. And the reason I was told that is because there was this idea that they're younger, so obviously they're not quote unquote ready to deal with these issues, or it's going to be more upsetting for them, or they have a young child, they have a you know young marriage, and so of course the subtext, the thinking is, of course they want everything done. And I started to see situations where I don't know that that was actually the case. And these patients were not given the same opportunity simply by virtue of their age and what we project our own discomfort with the fact that a young person in their 20s is dying. That was the barrier to having a conversation with them about what was really going on. And I would see outcomes where, you know, parents or the young spouses of these patients, the patients themselves would say, if only I had known this earlier, I would have made different decisions. And you see that in a lot of situations, regardless of age. But for whatever reason, it was the the set of assumptions about the fact that someone is young and therefore we can't have these same discussions that really started to become, again, deeply uncomfortable for me because I remember one patient I had who had very aggressive form of stomach cancer, which is very unusual to see in somebody in their late 20s. And I was seeing this patient and the patient next door to this person was someone in their 70s with the same type of aggressive stomach cancer. And I remember leaving the, the young patient's room and thinking, I have these two people with the same horrible disease that's incurable, and one person has had much more say in what things are going to look like than the other. And the reason is age. And I, believe me, I 100% understand how uncomfortable it is for all of us when somebody is dying before their time or when the natural order of things as we see them is disrupted because a parent has to bury a child. There is nothing, it's completely human to not want to face that and to not want to have someone who we think has so much ahead of them to face that. So I have full empathy for why this is a source of tremendous distress. But I think it's incumbent on us to face that it is a lot of our distress. And sometimes it is the patient and family, but that shouldn't stop us from finding a gentle way into the conversation. And if we're shut down, at least we made the attempt. But And we try again, like we would for somebody in their 70s. But it just started to, it just, it's so fascinating to me that simply because somebody has so much life ahead of them, which is something that I often hear that we wouldn't engage them in conversation or we assume they're not quote unquote ready, which is a whole other thing I have a problem with to have these discussions because what does readiness mean or look like? How do we know that someone in their 20s isn't ready, but someone in their 70s should be ready to talk about end of life? We think about even like the tragedy of a life cut short, 
how do we know that someone in their 20s hasn't lived a full life? How do we know that someone in their 70s has? I mean, I think there's a lot of these interesting kind of sentimental narratives and stories and assumptions about a life well-lived, a life cut short, what it means to be ready to die. All of that stuff filters into how we see where our patients are at. And I think when we can't recognize that it's sometimes more about us than them, then people get treated very differently. And that's the stuff that I really, I I mean, clearly, Megan, I think too much about like depressing things, but like it comes up. (laughs) There's so much going on with this. And I mean, to get into a really touchy area, I'm listening to you and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about like factors like socioeconomic class or that sort of thing. If a patient who you know, is affluent or educated or that the doctor relates to, or if the patient him or herself is a physician, if those conversations go differently. And the reason I'm asking this is several years ago, I was doing some reporting. Uh, Don't ask me why. This is a a (laughs) grim assignment. Uh, But I was interested in these issues. I know that's how you and I first became friends. Um, I was doing some reporting about uh, children's hospice of all things. Oh, yes. And I went and followed around a team in Southern California, down in Orange County, spent several days making the rounds the patients and their families had given me permission to kind of just, you know, tag along. And it was remarkable because I would say 95 to 100% of the caseload, and these were kids with end-stage cancers mostly, 95 to 100% of them were poor. They were poor kids. They were kids of color. They were living in places, you know, very cramped conditions, sometimes like with not even air conditioning. There was not a, like a single affluent white kid in this bunch. And you know, this was a hospice team. This was, you know, a major hospital. And I, the patient population was just really surprising to me. And I asked the physician, you know, on the team, like why he thought this was. And he said, you know, I've been asking myself this for a long time because this has been the population for a long time. And he said, I think that white affluent physicians relate to patients who are like them and they don't want to give up on them. It's even, it's subconscious even. You're more likely to refer somebody into hospice if they are like from a family who just doesn't have the resources or maybe more religious, maybe more accepting. The families themselves are more accepting of death than some kind of, you know, high-flying, you know, super entitled kind of family. Just, I I wonder what you think about all that. That is such a tough issue. And I think I want, I, so first of all, I absolutely think that just at a human level, when we relate to somebody and we see them going through things that are very tough, it's a reminder that we too can go through this. And so I, and again, I think a lot of this is subconscious and so sometimes we do more for those people because we see themselves, we see ourselves in them. Yeah. 
And I think that that's kind of, I think it's a human impulse, but it absolutely contributes to the very different ways that people are treated. And I, I think, you know, as you brought up, when a patient is a physician, I think everybody at some level cannot see clearly. In some, I'm not saying everybody does this, but I have seen situations where someone being a patient, being a physician, definitely changes how teams will think about the issues that the person is facing, offering things they may not offer to other patients. And it's very much subconscious. And I think it also is a huge assumption that this person would want all of that just because they're a physician, because I've seen a lot of situations where physicians say, I don't want this for myself. And they're never given the opportunity to voice it as fully as they might want to because of our assumptions about what they want and our projections. And so I think there's definitely something to that. And I think a lot of, you know, folks who are poor and people of color, just access to the right treatment in a timely fashion is way more of a challenge. And they don't always know how to advocate for themselves if, for example, they don't speak English or they don't understand the healthcare system or they don't know their rights. And so I do think it's a situation where a constellation of issues that impede care, like timely access to care in the first place, contributes to a lot of people being on hospice earlier than someone who's white and affluent and knows how to work the system. Like when I did, when I was a hospice doctor um, for part of my first year out of training, I covered South LA and the zip codes I covered out of 103 zip codes. I think they were numbers like 98 and 102, something like that out of 103 zip codes in terms of life expectancy. So I would see people dying of breast cancer in their early fifties and literally 10 miles away, you know, I are the other parts of the team would never see that. And so it's, it's, I think very similar in, in the pattern that I observed where people were getting delayed diagnoses um, some people who had no access to care for a long time would want really aggressive care because they hadn't gotten access to care and timely diagnoses. And other people were just kind of like, this is how my life has always been. So if the doctor recommends hospice, that's what I'm going to do. But it is, I think there's all of these issues. I mean, we obviously, as doctors, we're human, right? And we, and I have a lot of empathy for our own blind spots that we bring to patient care. But but I think it's not an excuse to not do the inner work of thinking, hey, why is it that all of my Black patients are put on hospice and none of my white patients are at the same time if the disease is at the same stage, if that's indeed the case for that person's patient panel? So I think there is kind of the obligation to also do some self-reflection and evaluation. And I think that's not really taught to us as something that's important. People don't have time to do that, but I still think it's, this is again where a palliative care team can be really helpful because we can see this stuff sometimes more clearly because we're outsiders. And that can be a function of ours as well to point out what are the ways that someone's being treated differently than another person. 
What kind of training are medical students getting around these issues? I feel like I've read stuff that says like, uh, you know, uh, in, throughout medical school and even residency, like the amount of time a student gets, you know, the amount of instruction a student gets, e- even in things like having a conversation with the patient about their wishes is like an hour or something. Like, what are we dealing with here? Yeah. So when I was in med school, there was pretty much nothing. And I finished my tr- my med school training in 2010. I finished residency in 2013, so a decade ago. And in residency, we also really didn't have pretty much any formal instruction. And that was at UCSF, which is a place that was always a leader in palliative care. And we never really had structured didactics. There weren't any standardized patients where we had to do, you know, mock conversations with on a regular basis. And nowadays, I think, you know, what's challenging is there's no... There's no like expectation from the American Association of Medical Colleges, the AAMC, which kind of oversees undergraduate medical education. There's no like explicit expectation that there's a certain amount of conversation-based training that people need to have before graduating. And the same goes in residency. So you might be lucky and go to a residency program where they do a lot of training or, you know, when I was a fellow at Stanford, they had all of the medical, the internal medicine residents rotate with the palliative care service. It was a requirement. So sometimes you get lucky and your program sees the importance of this. At at UMass, where I am right now, all the internal medicine residents have to rotate with palliative care. It's a requirement. And I do think that that says something both to the residents about the importance of this, but also it speaks to the institutional values that, yes, we see that this is incredibly important and a core skill every physician needs to have, not just the palliative care doctors. But there's no, like, unless you're at a place like that or you actively seek out elective opportunities, you know, medical education is not preparing people for this. They're not, you know, we might have give a few lectures to med students on breaking bad news, but it's not something that you learn in lectures alone. You have to practice and you have to, for example, want to be good at this. You have to want to make sure that if your patient is really sick, that you're bringing it up to your team. Hey, maybe we should have a goals of care discussion. And that's part of what it means to advocate for the best possible care. It's not just, hey, maybe we should do a CT scan. We do CT scans because we might find something that will change our plan of care. And conversations are a procedure, just like a CT scan or a surgery. What comes out of them can change someone's care plan. So unless it's seen as that elemental to doing the right care for a patient, I don't think anything's going to change. And right now, I don't think that uniformly it's seen that way because the curriculum doesn't reflect it. Is there a real shortage of people going into this specialty? So the, yeah. So palliative care is a chronically understaffed specialty and there's a lot of turnover and so, and burnout. And so For example, I think this is an equity issue as well. If you're in a rural area, you may not have access to palliative care because your local hospital may not have it. And the the nearest team is 
you know, miles and miles away, or you might have like one nurse who is the palliative care team. Whereas at a major university center, you're going to have doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, you know, all of them on the same team. And so the, the workforce shortage only exacerbates these inequalities in access and the type of palliative care you're going to get, the comprehensiveness of the care. And so more people are going into it now, for sure. That's why the number of training programs is going up. But we can never do all of the palliative care needed in the hospital, which is why there's this concept called primary palliative care. And that's the skill set, the basic skill set every physician should have. So just like we don't call cardiology for every case of AFib, they would kill us. We have to be able to do some of that work ourselves as internists. It's the same thing with palliative care. You have to be able to know the basics of cancer pain management. And then when things get complicated, you call us. Because unless, and that's where education comes into it, unless it is an expectation for every physician to have that skill set and to be able to do the basics and to have the training to do it, it's going to be the fast track to burnout for our specialty and patients aren't going to get what they need. Wow. Well, I'm going to keep you for some uh, bonus content, but before we wrap this up, I hope this doesn't uh, come too far out of left field, but I want to ask you, you are in your early forties, I believe. Yes. And we're going to talk about that in the bonus as we often do. (laughs) What, what would you do if you were diagnosed with, say, stage four cancer right now? That is a great question. And it's something, to be honest, that I think about a lot because of what I see. And I think if that happened, I will be honest, I would be in a state of shock because I am a young person. But I also think that I would immediately start thinking about what do I want my life to look like? And some of that's an occupational hazard, right? That I think about this on behalf of other people so much that it would be something I would think about immediately. And it would almost be a moment of forced clarity where I think I would really want to see my life for what it is and see what are the things that I have prioritized that should not have been as big of a priority And what are the things I want to do that are going to make me happy? I would immediately call my parents who are in LA and my brother who's in LA. I would tell them you need to fly out. And when I start treatment, we're going to have ongoing discussions about what I want, what you want, and how we kind of figure things out. I would also, you know, I would have serious thoughts about whether I'd want to keep working or whether I would say I have had my time caring for other people, I think I need to care for myself, and I might just start writing full time. Seriously, <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like a, a great way to uh, spend one's last. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I would. I would do the same thing. Would there? Would there be? Any circumstances, or I mean, I'm sure there would be some circumstances, but can you imagine making a decision not to get treatment at all? So I think that would depend on the circumstance. 
for example, if it was cancer, what kind of cancer is it? What do I know about the effectiveness of treatments? But also, I think sometimes people think, I'm just not going to get treatment. I'm going to be okay. But the complications of cancer getting worse can be significant. So someone who with has colon cancer might be like, I saw my friend go through it. I don't want chemo. I want to travel the world, right? We hear about this sort of fantasy all the time. But the reality is that if you have colon cancer, it can block your bowels, and you're, you know, you could have a major obstruction, which could, you know, potentially kill you in a matter of days. You could have severe crippling pain that basically doesn't let you do anything. And so I think I would really have to think about what are the way, what are the goals of the treatment in general? What's the best it can buy me, not just in terms of years or months, but whether my symptoms could be actually better controlled. And I think that I would have to weigh all of that. If I was so far gone that treatment would not do really anything, then I would certainly be like, you know what, I'm going to just focus on making sure I'm not suffering. But I think I really also want people to know I would be scared. I would be really scared because I, you know, even though you've seen, I've seen a lot and seen people through a lot when it's you all of that sometimes flies out the window and you're just, you're vulnerable and you're scared and things are going to be out of your control and you don't know what's coming next. And that uncertainty, navigating uncertainty is like 95% of what I do for my patients and their families and my colleagues. And so to have to do it myself, I think would be devastating. But I think I would like to think that I would be clear-minded enough to know I wouldn't be the person saying, do everything for me, regardless of whether it'll work. I know I wouldn't be that person, but I would still have a lot of the array of human emotional reactions, grief for sure, devastation 100%. But I also would have to face it. There would be no way out except through. Well, Sunita, this has been fascinating. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking all this time. And um, I really encourage people to read your book and look up the many, many articles and essays you've written on these subjects. You're one of those doctors who's uh, also a really good writer. So (laughs) out of that, that's not fair. (laughs) Anyway, well, we're going to keep you a little bit for some overtime. But meanwhile, thank you so, so much for for speaking with me. Thank you, Megan. It's been, as always, totally wonderful. That was my conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri. She's currently the program director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts where she's also an associate professor of clinical medicine. She is the author of the 2019 book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And in addition to her many articles for places like The Atlantic and The New York Times, her article about CPR will be out in The New Yorker very soon, if it's not already. This is The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm going to slow things down a bit in August, as I often do, and take a few weeks off here. I haven't had enough time to actually write. I am a writer, by the way, and I haven't had enough time to do that in, oh, the last three years. So I'm really going to try to carve out some time for that and even share some of it with you on the Substack. So 
please don't go anywhere. My other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which I do with Sarah Hader, still comes out every week, so you won't miss the sound of my voice. I'm really excited about the interviews I have scheduled coming up on the Unspeakable podcast starting in September. But in the meantime, we're going to be off. You can catch up on anything you may have missed. You can sign up for my writing class if you're interested. Sign up for the Unspeak Easy one-day retreat in Denver on September 30th. Sign up for the Poconos Unspeak Easy retreat October 23rd through 26th, featuring guest speaker Kat Rosenfield. What else? You can order Unspeakeasy problematic merchandise at theunspeakeasy.com. Uh, just go to the shop section. You can still order nuanced AF unspeakable podcast merchandise, by the way. Just go to theunspeakablepodcast.com and go to the nuance store. You can like and subscribe to the YouTube page for this podcast where I'm posting all new interviews and have select back catalog interviews. And you can take a nap, which is what I'm going to do now. No, I'm not. I'm not going to take a nap, but I am going to take some time off and I will be back in September with many super nuanced guests. So thanks for listening always and see you next time. Mm-hmm.